presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Arizona's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to uh, part two of our session discussing CSI Arizona. And we're joined again by Daniel Scarpinato and Scott Martin. And I want to also introduce today Glenn Farley. Glenn will be the individual doing a lot of the heavy lifting for us on our research reports in CSI Arizona. Glenn was eight years with Governor Ducey as a chief economist for him. We're very excited to have him on board and like to begin by asking some questions. Uh, Glenn, first, it's great to have you on board. Uh, thank you for bringing me on, Earl. This is a, a tremendous opportunity to repeat on something that was said in part one, not just for me professionally, but as well for, for the state of Arizona as a whole, I think. Uh, the thing I'm most excited to do with CSI is support the development of good, nonpartisan, non-biased public policy here in Arizona. CSI has already proven itself capable of nav- navigating this kind of environment in Colorado, using data-driven analysis to educate and inform. And well-informed voters and policymakers, in turn, are better able to make good policy. I'm excited to bring that tradition here to build on and protect what we've accomplished in Arizona. You know, Glenn, you, you mentioned some things that we've wrestled with here in Colorado, and that is you know, tax increase potential, what would be the economic impact. So I would hope that what will happen with the tools that you will have uh, with our econometric modeling, um, you'll be able to take a look at if they did pass those tax increases, what would be the impact on income for the state of Arizona, but also what would be the negative impact or positive impact for the individuals if that was to occur. But a bottom line is, you know, what happens to revenue for the state? Well, it might encourage come up, but what happens to the income for the individuals and their spendable income as well as the employment level? We had some interesting results here in Colorado that weren't intuitively obvious to some people. So hopefully you'll have a chance to use the econometric model to enlighten folks and not with an R or a D associated with it. It's just the facts are the facts, which uh, as an economist, your background, you know, that's the case of what every economist wants to do is, hey, let me give you the facts, then you can make decisions. Uh, Absolutely. There's one thing that that uh, you think of Arizona, and I've been involved in Arizona for business purposes, oh my gosh, for you know at least four decades. And every time something comes up about water, it's one of the biggest challenges there, or do you think it's one of the biggest challenges and do you see that on your radar as something you try to address in some of the uh, Arizona CSI studies? That's a great question, Earl. You know, last year, despite decades of effort by Arizona and some of our partner states in the lower basin, we faced our first ever declared tier one shortage of Colorado River water. As a result, Arizona will receive less water from that source this year. And the same 20 year drought driving the shortages in Lake Mead and the downstream rivers means less water is available elsewhere as well. Clearly, water will be one of the state's central growth challenges going forward. But, and I think this is important context, it's really not all doom and gloom. The state today actually uses less water than it did 65 years ago, despite having about seven times the population. And the Phoenix metropolitan area, home to half of the state's population and the vast majority of the state's growth, uses just 11% of its water supply. In fact, nearly three quarters of our water use is in rural agriculture which in turn makes up a small share of the state's overall economy and a smaller share still of its growth portfolio. That's not to diminish the value of our farmers and our food producers, 
The point here is that this is largely legacy water use. Most of our growth, our growth today in real time is urban in migration. And the not water use implications of that growth are much more manageable than these legacy issues. I think smart public policy can continue the tradition Arizona started with the 1980 Groundwater Management Act and leave us better positioned again 60 years from now. We know a little bit about water up here in Colorado, being a high desert, not where you are, of course, the kind of desert you have. But uh, what are some of the things that you all did to conserve water to get that kind of a, an advantage for uh, use of water? And, and I mean, that's an incredible improvement. What, what did you all do in the last couple of decades to have that happen? And what are the options going forward? I think it was really a combination of things, national policy, general technological change, and of course, state policy. But one of the things that we did is we required new development to have a 100-year source of water. We encouraged diversification of water supply. 60 years ago, the vast majority of water use was groundwater. Today, groundwater is less than half of total water use. We supplement that with with um, river water, which was virtually unused at the time, and uh, and other sources. Appliances are far more efficient today. Manufacturing processes are far more efficient today. And back then, agriculture was probably closer to 10% of the state's economy versus 1%. And it is well known that agriculture is heavy water use. It's just become far more efficient with fewer acreage, fewer people, and less water we're able to produce the same or more food than we were several decades ago. What do you see the way going forward? I think the primary path forward is is smart investments and exploration of alternative sources. You know, we've got the legacy sources, we've got the groundwater, we've got the river water, but there are alternative sources. There's desalination, something that's been successfully used in Israel and other desert countries. I think exploration of these alternative sources and investments in them, like the governor has proposed with this $1 billion proposal in the fiscal 23 budget, provide a path forward to ensure that we're not just trying to conserve our way out of this problem, that we're augmenting additional supplies with uh, with renewable and alternative news sources. You mentioned budget and the governor's budget. Give us a little insight into Arizona state budget. Um, first of all, where are the big expenditures and the ones that look like they're going to grow significantly? And then if you, if you want to kind of venture out, where do you see the uh, the opportunities for maybe budget control or control of the budget or budget decreases. This is really my bread and butter, Earl, so, so thank you for the opportunity to opine. I'm happy to say that the state budget is the healthiest it's probably ever been. This year, the general fund will bring in about $15 billion in revenue while spending about 12 and a half, creating a structural surplus of more than $2 billion, largest structural surplus in state history. Seven oh, years ago, stop, 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 stop. Oh. You, have a, you have a surplus? Yes, sir. Not just a cash surplus, a structural surplus of of, uh, of over $2 billion, where, you know, historically, we've talked about structural surpluses. If we had 50 or $100 million, we were counting our lucky stars. So this is without precedent. So what are you, what are you doing with that uh, surplus? Well, that's uh, that's part of actually one of the part of the concerns that uh, that I have had in my role and that I think um, the governor has shared, and that is that during periods of plenty, there's a temptation to to go on kind of a spending binge and to commit state resources to new ongoing expenditures. And this was part of what led to the fiscal 20, 2008 crisis where the state faced really 10 plus years of, of uh, shortfalls and scarcity after that. And so I think part of the, the plan here is to use these resources on targeted one-time investments 
billion dollars for water, a billion dollars for debt repayment, these kinds of things that put the state on stronger fiscal footing without making ongoing commitments that could become a problem for us once those ongoing revenues happen to to go away, if that makes sense. Do you see CSI Arizona doing any kind of econometric modeling on what some of those investments might be and what the investment return could be and the impact on employment income? Is that going to be part of your role at the, as the director down there? Absolutely. I think policymakers are obviously interested in making good policy, right? Their goal is to use resources wisely, but they can only do that with the information that's available to them. And I think the the governor has had good staff and the next administration will have good staff, but the state only has so many resources available to it. One of the things that we really lacked was good dynamic econometric modeling. Our modeling was mostly static. Uh, and so I think where CSI Arizona has a real opportunity to help in this regard is by providing that data analysis to policymakers so they can hopefully target those resources better. Going back to the budget for a second, if we could, Lynn, where do you see the the uh, exceptional growth in your budget that might be occurring? I know in Colorado, we have a couple of areas that are just exploding. Do you have a couple of areas in your budget that are exploding? And uh, what can you do about it, if anything? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a fair question. I think the, the obvious one for those that are familiar with Arizona budgeting over the past couple of years has been K-12 funding. K-12 funding has uh, been increased dramatically over the past couple of years, starting with the governor's proposal a few years back for so-called 20 by 2020, which, which provided somewhere between 500 million and a billion dollars in additional funding just to increase teacher salaries by 20%. Over three years, we've also provided funding for so-called results-based funding, more school choice funding. So, so it's really in the area of K-12 education that, that the budget has increased dramatically. And today, the Department of Education and other K-12 support is nearly 50% of the state general fund. In fact, it's so high, there's a constitutional limitation that was put in place by the voters way back in the 1980s. And that constitutional limitation has been sort of it's had no binding effect. It's just been out there. The Department of Revenue publishes an annual notice and everyone ignores it. Uh, now, because of the massive investments we've made over the past couple of years, we are running right up against that. And it will be an issue during the current legislative session, I expect. Well, you, you spent the money on education. You'll learn very quickly. I'm not here to ask you easy questions. So have you spent the money on the, on the education? Have you gotten results? What did you want to get in results? And what have you gotten? That, too, is a, a great question. I think part of the policy gap that, that currently exists, right, there's there's the policy making, but then there's the question of what did we get for that policy making and could we have done better? And so some of the, the things are relatively easy to track. And so we can confirm that on average, teacher salaries are approximately 20 percent higher, though the schools have some flexibility with use of that money. So there's no way that I can look at the data and guarantee that every teacher relative to where they were would have been a couple of years ago is 20% higher than they than uh, uh, they are today. Um, so that's one example of, of something we can actually reach out and measure. But the goal wasn't just to raise teacher salaries, right? The goal was to reduce teacher shortfalls, to, to ensure we had an adequate supply of teachers and increase the quality of education. So there's the extra leap. Did we accomplish that? And that's much harder to say. And, and things change, right? So we have the pandemic, for example, it's very clear based on the testing data that the pandemic resulted in some learning losses. 
uh, that confounds the problem. You know, would the learning losses have been worse without the investments we made in education in the past couple of years? I think probably yes. Would the learning losses have been work worse? Excuse me, had the governor not committed to reopening the schools as quickly as possible and getting the kids back in the classroom as quickly as possible? I think yes. But can we prove that with data and analysis? I think at this point, probably not. Okay. How about turnover your teachers? Has it gone down? That too, it's it's uh, a mixed bag, what the data suggests. Some schools, yes. Some schools, no. On average, I don't know offhand, but I suspect, again, it's going to be confounded by the pandemic. Uh, we've all seen the stories about about how teachers have responded to, to either the shift to remote learning or the requirement to return to the classroom. What do you see as the uh, challenges in the upcoming uh, legislative session in Arizona? You know, first, I think the budget is is an obvious challenge. Part of the problem that I alluded to earlier was in having $15 billion plus in revenues while only spending about $12.5 billion is there's tremendous amount of money and a temptation to spend it. Uh, over the past six years, spending has averaged about 5.3% a year, quite conservative. More recently, as revenues have accelerated, so too is spending, however. In fiscal 21, in fact, spending growth peaked at 18%. In my opinion, coming into the next session, legislators should carefully manage the state's fiscal resources by allowing one-time spending to roll off and remain truly one-time and being conservative with new commitments against the record revenues. The governor's fiscal 23 budget proposal grows spending by about 8% and keeps about $1 billion in cash unspent. The legislature should stick to these bounds. There's no need to grow spending by double digits simply because the money appears to be there. Elsewhere, there are gaps in the current budget process that are open for reform. I think those reforms could make that budget process fair, more consistent, accurate, and predictable, and reduce risk should another recession or revenue downturn occur. For example, the formula for saving money for a rainy day is archaic and ignored by our policymakers. We should repeal it, replace it with something simple, consistent and affordable that our policymakers will stick to. We should require the legislative and executive branches to adopt consensus revenue estimates and live within those estimates. And finally, we should give the next governor the power to temporarily reduce agency spending authority if and when the next revenue shortfall hits. I think that will provide Arizona the dose of fiscal stability it will need to avoid a repeat of what happened in 2008. Well, it sounds like pretty, you know, common sense. You know, let's have some flexibility in the budget so that if we don't have the money. We, you know, we don't try to spend what we don't have or dip into our reserves if um, we don't have to. Let me go to something that uh, is just happening, particularly here in the part in the middle part of the country, Texas, Arizona, Colorado, and that is you know, growing and migration is happening at unprecedented rates. Uh, Dan mentioned in our previous session, um, and Scott uh, referred to it also, but talk about housing affordability in Phoenix. My goodness, every time I pick up the paper and see a, a chart on housing prices. I see probably some of the biggest growth in housing prices in the country happening in Phoenix. How in the world are you going to take care of the general population if those housing prices keep going up? Yeah, this is a, uh, a great question and very, very uh, topical and on point. You know, when I first began in my, my role as the governor's chief economist eight years ago, it was one of the talking points for Phoenix metro area and the state of Arizona as a whole is it's a lower cost of living, particularly below average housing costs. So everyone could move there. Anyone could have a single family home with a yard. 
it's questionable whether that's still true. In fact, I just saw a story the other day that said that the Phoenix metro area had the fastest growing housing prices in the country, faster than Portland, faster than San Francisco, all the sort of contagion or malaise cities that we remember from the 2008 housing crisis. So I think it's questionable whether it's still true that uh, uh, Phoenix is affordable, or at least as affordable as it once was. The driver of this is our own success, right? Rapid population growth over the past couple of years has overwhelmed the state's capacity to build new housing to to house those folks. The solutions here from a policy perspective, in my opinion, are many, but there are good topical examples like the so-called yes in my backyard movement. You know, there's a legacy of, of zoning regulation in this country that enhances neighborhood attractiveness, yes, but the trade-off there is it reduces the supply of property by limiting where you can place apartments, for example, or condos and other high-density housing. There is an opportunity, I think, a bipartisan opportunity. This issue was originally raised by the Obama White House, for example, uh, to reform the zoning regulations in the urban areas to enable developers to place the kinds of high-density housing that will bring costs down and rapidly bring units online. We don't, uh, Glenn, we did a study here. Uh, we have two fellows that did a study. Uh, one was an R and one was a D. And they came, believe it or not, they come up with agreements as to what ought to be done. And uh, currently in the Colorado legislation, many of the ideas that they came up with affordable housing are now being considered. So let's hope for Arizona. Maybe as Arizona CSI can uh, have an impact on the affordable, affordable housing and the alternatives there. What about jobs? Uh, Daniel mentioned jobs and people coming in from California, various parts of the country. Um, you've got your pre-pandemic level of jobs. Uh, how do you, with the housing issue as you see it, and now you've got more manufacturing jobs and you have real estate jobs, how do you see your job environment and your economy compared to your, your neighboring states? Well, you know, it's really never been more clear uh, than the past couple of years, that public policy matters for economic growth. The past 18 months have exposed wide rifts between the states, depending on the policies that they adopted during the early pandemic and the willingness of the policymakers to adapt as that pandemic continued. Also interesting, and this is something that, that um, Daniel mentioned last time, the job growth recently has been quite diverse and particularly strong in manufacturing. This is a sector that was once commonly thought dead and buried in the United States and never coming back around 2017, 2018, unexpectedly, uh, to a lot of folks at least, manufacturing growth began to pick up, but it didn't pick up equally. For example, if you look at the manufacturing jobs numbers in neighboring California, they're on the same trend that they've been on since the 1980s, long-term decline. On the other hand, beginning 2017, 2018, manufacturing job growth really took off in Arizona, reaching 6 7 8%. And today there are more manufacturing jobs than construction jobs in the state. This is compares very favorably to the 2008 Great Recession, when the rapid job growth was highly concentrated and, hi and highly concentrated in these kinds of specific cyclical sectors that were vulnerable to recessionary downturns, sectors like construction and retail trade. Arizona is one of only four states in the country to have surpassed its pre-pandemic peak in employment. Among our regional neighbors, only Utah has also done so. California, Oregon, Nevada, and New Mexico are still months away. Colorado, for its part, has performed relatively well, perhaps a testament to the measured policies pursued there. Though still below its pre-pandemic peak, Colorado is within about 1%, and based on 
excuse me, recent growth trends should surpass its pre-pandemic level relatively soon. One thing I do want to close with, it's important to remember that even though Arizona is back to where we were, we haven't yet returned to the pre-pandemic trend. It will still take another year or so of robust, robust economic growth for Arizona to get back there. And that year or so of robust growth will in turn require continued commitment to pro-growth public policy. Lynn, thank you. And uh, I appreciate you taking all the time to answer the questions. Daniel, Scott, appreciate you being involved in, in uh, your contributions uh, to this uh, this podcast. And I must say that uh, I'm really anxious to see the results and, and the various challenges you take on in your first year and how that may impact uh, the public policy decisions of Arizona. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Earl. Uh, thanks for, for getting this all started. It's uh, time for us to get to work and, and uh, we've got a large task in front of us, but I think we're all very excited about the possibilities and looking forward to making CSI Arizona a reality. Thank you, uh, Earl, for your leadership. Thank you, Scott, for your leadership in getting this uh, started in Arizona. And I think as, as your listeners can hear, Glenn Farley is going to be a great fit for this organization to get us launched and, and moving in the state of Arizona. Yeah, thank you, Earl. And, and thank you, Daniel, for that vote of confidence. And, and I look forward to joining the team and, and seeing what uh, good things we can continue doing here. Well, I must say that uh, I personally am excited and I know that our board is excited and particularly with the leadership and you can see the three people that are beginning to make that happen. So thank you very much for joining us today. We look forward to those listening to the podcast for further podcast information on the research that we're doing. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Arizona, please visit commonsenseinstituteaz.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.